Hello, and welcome to the Revelation to John. My name is J.R. Foresteros, and I am the teaching pastor at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in Dayton, Ohio. You can find me on my blog at jrforesteros.com. And if you have any questions as you go through this podcast, you can email me at jrforesteros at gmail.com. That's jrforesteros at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast as well as to my sermon podcast by searching for me in iTunes or clicking the link on my blog. To aid you in going through this study, you can also download a couple of different resources, both the PowerPoint slides that I use when I teach and also a note sheet if you like to take notes and they're good things to save for later. You can download both of those things at my blog by searching for the Revelation study and then uh, each note sheet and PowerPoint slide is downloadable from the link on the sermon series engine each week. Finally, a note on the format of this podcast. Uh, I am recording this as I am teaching a class, so you often will not be able to hear some of the comments and feedback that the class members make. I will do my best to say those back into the microphone for the podcast, but in case you don't hear those things, uh, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the format and my recording limitations. All that said, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and without any further ado, here is the Revelation study. We'll start with uh, chapter 1, verse 19 through tw- uh, 9 through 20 again, which is, we, we started with the vision of the cosmic Jesus last week. I thought it would be good to revisit it uh, to talk about some of the interesting ways that John uses symbolism, because we're going to be doing this over and over and over throughout the book. So uh, we're gonna, I want to first call your attention to the overall description that John uses when he's describing this person that he sees, because John draws on three distinct uh, images, and he puts them all together to get this Jesus. So we're going to look through those here real quick, and I want to ask the big important question, why does he do this? What is he trying to say by this? So again, here is what John says when he turns around uh, and sees this guy. Beginning of verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see who it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His his head and his hair were white as white wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword with his face. uh, And his face was like the sun shining with full force. Okay. So... There are three different things uh, that, that John says here. Uh, first of all, he uses this common Aramaic phrase, a son of man. Back in verse 13, he says, I saw one like a son of man. And that was a common Aramaic expression. Aramaic was a form of Hebrew that they spoke in the first century. Uh, and it basically was a way to talk about a person. So if you were, you know, say like a person does this or a human person does this, Jesus refers to himself as a son of man quite often. Uh, it's actually also in the book of Daniel. Uh, it's also in the book of Ezekiel. Anytime God wants to remind Ezekiel that he's just some guy, he calls him son of man or mortal. And so this is a way of affirming the humanness of this figure. But then uh, John also uses some descriptions from Daniel chapter 7. And uh, I want to read this little vision that Daniel has. And this is, again, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. He says, As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one, some translations read the Ancient of Days, an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So here's Daniel's having a vision. And if you were to take a random, semi-well-educated guess at who this ancient one is, who would you say it is? It's not a trick question. Well, no, in the book of Daniel. Yeah, this is God. This is God the Father. Okay? So so there's this, this ancient one, the ancient of days, who's seated on the throne, and then all of creation is serving him. This is an image from the Old Testament of God the Father. Okay? Uh, who any Jew would have understood to be Yahweh, the God who gave them the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who this ancient of days person is. Okay? Then we have in Daniel chapter 10, 4 through 6, this angelic figure. And so we can read just a little bit of his description here. On the 24th day of the first month, I looked up and saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold iron from Ufaz around his waist. Ufaz is a place that had really, really nice gold. So some translations actually just render it the purest gold because we don't know where Ufaz is. Um, his body was like beryl and his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. Okay, now, in Daniel chapter 10, this is an angel, and Daniel is standing, uh, waiting for God, and this angel shows up, and he basically says, Hey, Daniel, I don't have a lot of time because I've been busy battling the prince of Persia, and I just took a break because Michael came to relieve me uh, so that I could come talk to you, but I don't have a lot of time. i got to get back and go back to the fight. So I just wanted you to know that God's on your side, and he hasn't forgotten you, and uh, we are fighting on your behalf. Okay, have a good day. And then he, and then he leaves. So um, a lot of commentators, both ancient and modern, identify this as the angel Gabriel. They don't actually know who it is. It's just some, some angel who's really fierce and powerful and is fighting on behalf of Israel. He's sort of a vehicle of Israel's deliverance from uh, some of the empires that were opposing them. So what's curious then is that in putting together this picture of this Jesus that he sees, John is drawing three different separate um, influences. One is the son of man, this human figure. One is the ancient of days, God. And one is this angelic warrior who fights on behalf of Israel. So if we were all good first century Jewish Christians who had our Old Testaments memorized, we would all know that just sort of like, oh, we'd recognize those things. So why would John be pulling all of those together? What's he trying to say about who this person is? I mean, we, we know it's Jesus, so what statements is he making about Jesus? Okay. Yes? <laughs> See, we laugh because we have 2,000 years of saying, hey, as a church, we know Jesus is fully human and fully God. But in the first century, when they're still trying to figure all of this stuff out, those were both really important statements. There were some people who followed the Christian tradition, who said that Jesus only appeared to be human. He wasn't actually human, that he was only God. Okay, and John says, no, he's human. And then there were other people who said, well, Jesus was just some guy that was like really extra religious, and he got, God sort of chose him and singled him out and then gave him all of this power. And John says, no, no, he actually is God. He is God the Father. He's that same person that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that gave Moses the covenant, and that was that Daniel saw seated on that throne. And then he also includes this final picture. What 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 do you think he's saying about Jesus using this stuff from Daniel ten with this angel? He's fighting on behalf of mankind. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, remember, this is being sent to churches that are stuck in a conflict between the dominant culture and their faith. And they're having to try to figure out how to choose, do I follow the culture and do I kind of do what's easy and what will make life simpler for me, or do I stay faithful to God? Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to stay faithful to God if your God loses. I mean, you chose the wrong God, right? I mean... And so this is a great affirmation of, no, remember, this same God has always come through for Israel, and he's always continuing to do battle on behalf of God's people, and that's, that's all still happening. But, of course, Daniel doesn't, or John doesn't write any of that out. He gives us this really cool picture that, that invites us to do some hard work and to, to start figuring some of this stuff out. That's what John does with symbols over and over and over throughout the book. Sure, he could have just said it in a paragraph or talked about it like we just talked about it, but instead he presents it with images that invite us to, to dissect and to play with it and to try to figure things out and calls us back to scriptures that we find uh, throughout the Old Testament and makes us um, really kind of understand in a different way who Jesus is and who God is and what God is doing. Does that make sense? Good. Well, then uh, I want to note two other really important pieces of this image. Uh, and I, I found this great picture. Someone drew it and put it on the Internet so that we could have it today. Uh, but it was about the most comprehensive picture of Jesus in Revelation 1 that I could find. Many of them actually omitted the sword coming out of his mouth for a nice smile so, like, we get a friendly Jesus. Uh, and this one definitely has a sword, and it's, like, way out there in the front. Uh, and we've got the, the seven lampstands around him. And then you can, can't really see it right there, but you've got the seven stars in his right hand. So... Um, again, the, so the first thing is that when we're introduced to Jesus, it says he's walking among seven golden lampstands. And then at the very end of the chapter, John tells us that these, actually Jesus tells John, who then relays it to us, that these seven lampstands are these seven churches. So what's the significance of the fact that Jesus is walking among the lampstands? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus is in the midst of the churches. Uh, it's, it's really interesting when we get to the map of where the seven churches are. Again, you can kind of see they, they formed this circle because they were on this mail route. And so you can almost imagine if you actually physically stuck a lampstand. Anyone remember where in the world is Carmen San Diego and they had to stick the big poles on the, on the maps at the end? Like, you can imagine that if you actually did something like that, you could, you could actually walk in and among them because they make this nice little loop. And that's, it's, it's a really cool image. But it, but it makes a powerful statement that Jesus is, in and among the churches. He's not separate from them. He's not detached from them. He's not sort of sitting up in heaven, taking a vacation after the resurrection. No, he's, he's right in the middle of what's going on with them. And of course, today, we talked about this a little bit last week, because seven in Revelation is the number of wholeness or completion. This isn't just a letter to seven churches in the first century. This is a letter to all of the churches, to the whole church today. And so the same thing is still true today. Jesus is in and among our churches, not just in and among our church, but in and among all of the churches and working around and in the whole church across the world. So I think that's a really cool image. Uh, and then if it's possible to get even a stronger image, we get that it says that Jesus holds the stars in his right hand. Now, at the end of the chapter, it also says that the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. Uh, this is something that we touched briefly on last week, but we said that in the ancient world, they understood that everything on earth had a, a correspondent up in heaven. 
And so the things that happened in the heavens were mirrors and reflections of things that happened on earth. And so each of these churches is represented in Revelation as, as one of as a star, which is an angel up in the cosmos. So when Jesus is writing these messages and telling John to deliver them to the seven angels, they're actually it's understood that this is actually something that's being directed to the churches. And so the angel sort of stands as a, a cosmic representation of the church. And that comes into play later in the book. So so we have Jesus who is holding these seven stars, and he's holding them in his right hand. And that's important because, uh, and this is in your symbol sheet from last week, the right hand is the symbol of authority and power, right? any, any, anything on the right side of the body. So the fact that Jesus is holding these angels in his right hand is a statement that Jesus has authority over the churches. And again, that's very important for churches that are suffering, that are facing persecution, that are wondering, is God really here because we're trying to be faithful? And you'll see that as we get into some of the letters today. Some of the churches, because of their faithfulness, because of their refusal to compromise, are suffering. And so they say, well, I'm, I'm doing the right thing and things aren't going well for me. Is God really in control? And so right here at the very beginning, we get this powerful statement that, yes, Jesus is the one who controls the destiny of the churches. I mean, your fate is uh, literally in his hand. And so anything that happens is not outside of his say-so. There's nothing happening that he's not allowing to happen in some way, and that's not ultimately working towards his final plans. And, and, and that's what we get to see in the book of Revelation. Oh, and then I also, since we had the question last week, I looked up the, the burnished bronze. And uh, we'll talk about that here in a little bit when we get to one of the churches. But they said that that was a symbol of Jesus's, uh, basically his steadfastness and his unconquerability. It was that he's immovable. You know, if you have bronze feet, you're going to be real heavy. So it's sort of like he's king of the hill, so to speak. No one's going to unseat or unthrone him. So I thought, thought that was a nice little thing that uh, I had to look up for. So, all right, let's talk about the seven letters of the seven churches. We're going to be in chapters two and three, and we're just going to work straight through. We're going to do as many of them as possible, uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to bracket off some time at the end for application. So uh, with that in mind, we're just going to uh, – but that does not mean don't ask questions. Please, 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 if I'm going too fast – Stop me, ask a question. The most important thing is that you understand, not that we get through all seven of the churches. You'll get a really good idea of how we read these letters as we get through two or three of them. So uh, we'll go as quickly as we can, but as slowly as we need to. So first of all, uh, if I were to tell you, uh, if we were to name a few U.S. cities, and I was asking you to tell me a little bit about the character of the city, you could probably do it, right? Like if I said, um, give me a couple of words that describe New York City. Busy? Anything else? Populated. Populated? Okay. Uh, crowded, maybe? Yeah. Commerce. Okay. Yep. A lot of commerce going on there. Multicultural. Multicultural. Skyscrapers. Skyscrapers. Okay. What about Los Angeles? Smog. Turmoil. Smog. Turmoil. Okay. Trendy. Trendy. Hot. Liberal. Liberal. <laughs> Okay, Seattle. Oh, yeah, entertainment industry in L.A., very good. What about Seattle? Wet? Coffee? <laughs> More coffee, right? No, guys, this is very good. You don't know this, but you're, gonna, you're doing so well setting us up for our discussion. Space Needle, good. I mean, we know this, right? Cities, cities today sort of have an identity. And, and if you go to the different cities, you can really sense that. 
Well, in the ancient world, that was even more pronounced because there was so much less travel and communication. I mean, when you live in a pre-modern society, most people in a city, if, if you were born there, you probably almost never left the city, ever, in your whole life, unless you were some kind of a merchant or a tradesman or something like that, and you had to. Um, so cities developed really strong identities, and incidents that happened uh Dozens or, or even hundreds of years in the city's past, if they were if they were in, if they were important enough, could really shape the character of the city. So one of the first things we're going to do as we go through these letters is talk a little bit about a, the background of each city and the, the specific culture of each city, as much as we know from ancient documents, from archaeology, and things like that. So uh, and then we're going to talk about how that specifically impacts the the letters, because you'll see that Jesus is incredibly clever in the way he delivers his messages. They have unique and personalized messages that, that would not mean the same thing in other cities as they would to these particular recipients. And you'll see what I mean as we work through that. So there are some basic questions that we're going to work through uh, that, that speak to the structure of each of the letters. If you have already read through these letters, you know that they, um, as we already talked about a little bit earlier, they follow a pretty, they get, the pattern gets pretty predictable after a while in, in a good way. So the first thing we're going to ask is, what's the background of the city? Uh, then we're going to ask, how is Jesus described? Uh, we're going to ask, what is the church doing well? Because that's always the first thing that Jesus talks about. Then we're going to say, what's the problem? There's something going on in the city that has occasioned this letter, and we want to know what it is. We're going to ask, what's the warning in the letter? Again, Jesus usually says, be careful or else something. And we're going to ask what that or else is. Then there's a promise, but to anyone who endures, or but if you return to me, or but if you wake back up, it's not too late, you know, then something good will happen. And then we're going to say, okay, so we're going to put all of that together, and we're going to ask what's really going on in this church. After we dig through all of the symbolism, after we dig through all of the cultural history, all of that stuff, what actual picture of the church is emerging? So let's start with the letter to the angel at Ephesus in verses one, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Jesus says this to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. And you have found them false. I also know that you, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then what you have fallen, uh, from what you have fallen, and do, not, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You also hate the uh, work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Okay, so uh, some stuff about you. So I don't know how well any of you can see this, but I put little red circles uh, around each of the cities. So Ephesus is right here. It's on the coast. Uh, about the time that this letter was written, its population was over 400,000 people, which made it by far the largest city in this region. Okay, it, it was the metropolis uh, for hundreds of miles around. Uh, the picture that you can see here is the ruins of the Ephesian Library of Celsus, and the theater that was behind this library held over 25,000 people. So 
is a pretty big deal, had a lot of impressive architecture. The most interesting and important feature of Ephesus is that it was home to the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was actually built around an ancient uh, tree that had been probably a site of some really early kind of pagan worship, and then the, the Temple of Artemis was built up around it. Today, this is all that's left of it is one of the columns, uh, but you can see that artist's rendition of what it would have looked like in its day, and those are all little people down there, so you can get a sensitive. I mean, it, especially considering how old this structure is, it, it truly was really impressive, and this would have absolutely dominated the Ephesian skyline. Okay, This would have been certainly one thing that you could definitely see uh, in this town. So, let's go to the questions. I think they're in your worksheet there. Uh, is there any other background stuff I need to tell you about? I don't think so. Okay, good. Uh, so, what is the description of Jesus in Ephesians, or in the church to, to the Ephesians? Well, it's that he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, again, what was the, what was the meaning of that symbol? Why say those things? Yeah, he has authority over the churches, and, and he's, he's present. He's working in the midst of them. Okay, good. Uh, so what is the church doing well from the letter? Okay, good. There's this group there that we're going to talk about more in a minute, that they don't, they don't tolerate their practices. What else? Okay, they're working hard. They're enduring. They're persevering. Is that... Oh, yeah, patience. Very good. Yeah, you, they're, they're testing people. I mean, you get the sense, right, that, that when people come into this church, they don't just sort of let them say whatever they want, right? I mean, they're really, they really put them through the ringer before they give what they say any sort of uh, credence. Paul was there three years. <laughs> yeah, Paul, Wendell just said Paul was there three years, and so you can imagine if they're anything like Paul's character, you know, yeah, no big surprise there, right? Um, so, so what's the problem? Yeah, yeah, it says they've lost their first love, or the love that they had at first, right? Good. Uh, so what's the warning? Obviously, I mean, Jesus says you need to get back to the things that you do. Do the things you did at first, return to your first love, or else. What, what, is, the, uh, what, is, the, what is the threat? It says, I'm going to remove your lampstand from you. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, this, so, so here's, here's, is he going to destroy it? Is he going to disband it? Like, some, somehow, the church is going to cease to be. Okay, good. Which is fairly intense warning. <laughs> but now, what is the promise? He says, to anyone who conquers, or what does he say? Sorry, uh, yeah, anyone who conquers what? Yeah, now that's an interesting comment to the Ephesians. Why? It's a tree, and. Yeah, the Artemis cult was founded around a tree. Right, and so the, the, one of the, the main pagan religion in this city is around a tree, and God's like, I got a better tree. So you can, I mean, that's that's why I begin to talk about. It. You say you start to see some of these really specific things. If he said that to some of the other cities, they'd be like, okay, cool, 
tree of life, live forever. I mean, that's good. We want to, but to the Ephesians, that was a particularly interesting promise because of the role that this cult of Artemis played in their city. Uh, so let's start working through all of this and putting it together. And I'm going to kind of do this quick and uh, just because it's our first letter, and then we'll start going through them a little bit more slowly together. So apparently the church in Ephesus has been infiltrated by a group of people who are teaching heresy. And they call themselves apostles. They're following someone named Nicholas, which there was a Nicholas who was one of the early apostles in Acts. And some speculate that it might be him, and he just kind of went off in some goofy direction or something like that. But we just we actually don't know who this guy is. Uh, he's actually mentioned a couple of times in one of some of the other letters. So apparently he was a pretty popular teacher in this region, but we just actually don't know that much about him. What we do know is that he was teaching heresy, and... This particular church took a strong, hard line against it and would not permit that teaching in their church. But apparently, that had turned into a really strict and unyielding legalism within the church. And the, the love that Christianity is founded on, like the, the foundational love of Christ, was, was absent in the church at this point. That's what Jesus says to them, right? He says, you've, you've lost your first love. Like, good job standing up for what's right and true, but in the process, you've lost the thing that actually makes you the church, the thing that actually makes you my disciples. Did I, I heard some, I think I heard someone say at the beginning that you were going through a John study also right now. Is that okay? Back then? So Jesus says to the disciples in John, they will know you're, you are my disciples in this. And does anyone know what he says? Yeah, that you love one another. Okay, so, so for, for the whole Johannine worldview, the Gospel of John, the Epistles, Revelation, the love of Christ is really the foundational core thing that defines Jesus' followers. And Jesus is saying, here, you, you guys have lost that. I mean, I'm, I'm glad for what you're doing, but you've lost, you've lost that core thing. You've, you've lost the, the thing that brought you to me in the first place. And you, you need to get that back because if you do not get that back, you are not a church anymore. You're not, my you're, you're not my disciples. You're not my followers. And so if, if you continue on the trajectory that you're going, I'm, I'm going to take your lampstand. And so, of course, what he says is it's, it's not too late to rediscover your passion, to get the fire back, so to speak, in the lampstand. And he encourages them to do that, to really pursue that, because it's, it's not too late. Yes. Because they've done the exact same thing. Yes. Yeah, very good. Yeah, the comment was, uh, this is actually really similar to what Jesus had to deal with with the Pharisees, because the Pharisees had let their system and their rules uh, overtake them, and it had driven out any any options for love and mercy and compassion in their, in their so yeah, great observation. Um, okay, good. Let's go on to Smyrna. Any questions about Ephesus, I guess, before we go on? Okay. To the angel at Smyrna. We're going to read all of these, by the way, because uh, he said at the beginning of the book, blessed is the one who reads or hears these. So we're going to read and hear them, and uh, we will claim that blessing. <laughs> uh, something like that, right? Um, to the angel in the church of Smyrna, write, these are the words of the first and the last, the one who is dead and came back to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware. The devil is about to throw you, some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. 
Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Who, whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Okay, a little background on Smyrna. It's up here a little ways up the coast from Ephesus. Uh, it's another port town. It also was fairly wealthy because of its port status. And uh, it was actually rebuilt by Alexander the Great. And so it, was, it, it became this pretty big, sprawling port town. Um, the rebirth of the city when, you know, he did this big renovation and all that was a point of pride for the citizens. And uh, Smyrna was known for its fierce loyalty to its allies. So when Rome came into the region, Smyrna, and, and they took over Smyrna, Smyrna was actually the first city in the region to build a temple to the goddess Roma and to start worshiping the imperial cult there. So they were an early, early sta- uh, place for the imperial cult. They also had an... Uh, Unusual for the region, an unusually large Jewish community and a strong synagogue there, which you heard referenced in the letter. And uh, another thing that's just very interesting, again, because of the thing, the thing that Jesus says is, here's a coin uh, from Smyrna, and you can see on it this little wreath. Well, the wreath is that crown that is the gold medal kind of athletic crown that people were given when they won athletic competitions. And so for some reason, Smyrna had coin, uh, on their coinage, they had these crowns. Uh, these these wreath crowns, these laurel crowns. And uh, you heard Jesus make mention of that. So, okay, what is the description of Jesus here? He was the first and the last. Good. Very good, yeah. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who died and, and came back to life. Good. Uh, what is, What is the church doing well? What does this mean when he says, I know your poverty even though you are rich? What do you think that means? Mm-hmm. But they are rich means what? They're rich in their, in their faith. Yes. And, and their eternal life. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. Uh, this, is a, this is a community that the, the Christians have been faithful and you can imagine that with such a strong imperial cult presence on one hand and a strong Jewish presence on the other hand, they were caught in the middle, right? To be faithful to Christ cost them, literally, financially. And so Jesus says, look, I know that you're poor. I know that it has cost you, but you are rich. Okay, you are rich. Good. Um, what is the church doing well? Or, sorry, what's the problem? <coughs> now, this is not an internal problem like we saw in Ephesus. This is an external problem. What seems to be going on? Yeah. Yeah, so so we see a couple of things. And, again, it's that tension that we felt. On, on one side, they're getting persecuted by the Jewish synagogues. Again, in the first century, there was no clear-cut line between who was a Jew and who was a Christian. Uh, all of them considered themselves to be Jewish. And so you can imagine with a small group of Jewish people who were following Jesus and saying he's the Messiah, he's the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and David and all of this, and then a much larger group of Jews who said, no, actually, you're a bunch of heretics. Get out of our synagogue and quit worshiping here. Uh, that, that it would be easy for such suffering to break out, and that's what's happened here in Smyrna. Now, that was a big problem for the Christians because... Uh, the Jews were the only ethnic group that had basically a special religious license. Uh, because, the, because 
the Romans respected the Jewish religion, they gave Jewish people, no matter where they were in the Roman Empire, basically a free pass, and the, the Jews did not have to participate in the imperial cult. Okay? Uh, so, that was really good for Christians, because if they were still a part of the Jewish synagogues, which they considered themselves to be part of the Jewish synagogues, then they got, they got that same pass that the Jewish people did. However, in Smyrna, in particular, in this book, uh, the synagogues are saying, they're not actually Jews anymore, so go ahead and do whatever you want to them, right? And then that's where you're seeing here on the other side, they're getting caught by the imperial cult who's saying, well, if you're not part of the synagogue, then that means you have to be participating in all of these cultic things. You have to be doing the worship that goes on at, you know, the union meetings and all of that kind of stuff. And so because the Christians were not doing that and were not welcome in the synagogue, that was where that, the source of that suffering was coming from. And does it sound like it's going to get better anytime soon? No, no it does not. No, 10 days is not, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in jail for that long. Yeah, so 10 days, Abby has identified this as a symbol in Revelation. Uh, what does it mean? What's the number 10 refer to? Yeah, pull out the cheat sheets. Yeah. It with, with, yeah, with a sense of totality, right? So, so the idea here is that there is, a, there is a set amount of time that this imprisonment and this testing is going to be happening, and they are not going to know how long that is. Uh, so, so as bad as that is, there's sort of a silver lining in that, and you're going to see this over and over and over throughout the book of Revelation. And the silver lining is that it is a clear, defined, finite amount of time. And even though they do not know, God does know. So implicit in the 10 days in prison is, well, it is going to end. It will not last forever. But... What is the promise? Maybe. What's the promise? What promise does Jesus make to them? Yes. Yeah, the crown of life. And? Yeah, so we've got two things here that are really interesting. One is the crown of life, which you rightly identified is a reference to the, this symbol of Smyrna, right? But, and again, this is not a crown like a king would wear. This is more like a gold medal, which symbolizes what? Winning. Okay, so, I mean, again, just think how weird it is, how weird it would be for you to walk by someone who's an enemy of the state who's imprisoned for it, who's suffering for it, who's on the verge of death, and be like, hey, man, good job, here's a gold medal. Like, that's weird, right? I mean, do you, do you see the, the irony there? Like, it doesn't look like they're winning in any way, by any definition of the word win. But Jesus says, if you endure, if you stay true, if you do not compromise, you win. You get the crown of life. You get, you get the reward. You get the gold medal. Okay. And here's where it gets hairy. You will not be harmed by the second death. Okay. Any, any ideas about what the second death might be if any of you have read ahead before? Cheated and read the end? Yeah. This is the lake of fire. This is all of that stuff. It's not, we don't get to it until chapter 20. So it's going to be a while. But this is the second death. Okay. Now, 
What is interesting that Jesus' promise left out? What? The first death. (laughs) Right? Very good. He doesn't say anything about the first death. He just says, if you endure, you will not be harmed by the second death. So, what does that leave open as a real possibility as a result of this persecution? Yeah, death. This might cost them their lives. But, now let's go back to who Jesus is. Who did Jesus say that he was? Yeah, he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and came back to life. So, why should the Smyrnans care about that? Because they might die. To remain faithful, to to choose Christ, to choose to remain faithful to the gospel may cost them their lives. But this is the gospel of Jesus, and he is the first and the last. Who gets the last word? Jesus gets the last word, not Rome. And so if they die, well, Jesus has already conquered death, and he's come back to life. And so they will share in his resurrection, and they will not be harmed by the second death. So hang in there, guys. God knows what's going on. God is in your midst. God is walking among you. Well, there's a little more depth to the point. Is that, you know, if we have an understanding of death, but their understanding of death might have been quite different. Sure. They looked upon death as the end of existence. Absolutely. Finality, total finality. Yes. Whereas uh, they're saying, no, that's not the case. Yep. Yeah, resurrection was actually a pretty foreign concept for the Greco-Roman world. You can see this when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, right? They're all arguing about what resurrection even means and whether or not it's a body or not. And Paul's like, hey, guys, like you, your body dies and goes under the ground and then it, then it comes back like a seed, you know, he uses the seed analogy. Again, today that's not weird for us because we've had 2,000 years of thinking about that. But for you're absolutely right to observe that for this world, this whole idea of, of a an actual physical bodily resurrected life after death is was a, a pretty unusual concept. So, good, very good. All right, any questions, comments about Smyrna? Ready to go into Pergamum? They just I don't keep think I'd want to be a part of the <laughs> Oh, you just wait till we get to Philadelphia, then you're going to be real mad that you're Smyrna. <laughs> it's pretty hard on the Jews here, I would say. Okay. They're the synagogue of Satan. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so let's hold on to that comment, Mike. Keep it in your back pocket because Satan's going to be a character in Revelation in a few chapters. Actually, in like 12 chapters. Uh, so let's, let's see how he functions in Revelation. And then I want to come back and bring this letter and what he says about them because, because it sheds a lot of light on what he actually means by that. Um, so, but yeah, that's, that's, that is a good observation. Obviously, during the parts of Christian history when we were... Um, less than hospitable to the Jewish people. This was one of the go-to texts that we use. We're like, well, see, Jews are the devil. Uh, so that, yeah, and it'll be very good for us to be careful with how we understand what this means. So, yes, very good observation. Okay, Pergamum, beginning in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp Two-edged sword. See, there it comes. Here we go. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. 
but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. See, there they are again. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so Pergamum. Pergamum was a citadel, big old fortress, and it was built around a 1,000-foot-tall hill, which here in this bottom picture here, you can see the hill up off in the distance, and there's some ruins on the top of it, which you can get a little bit better picture of right there. At the very top of the hill was a temple to Zeus, and uh, Pergamum was also a major center for the imperial cult. Uh, the Roman proconsul lived there, who's like the regional governor. He made his home in Pergamum. And then there was also a strong court of Asclepius, who was a Greek guy who was a healer, and his, uh, his symbol was the snake. So if you've seen the medical staff with the snakes on it, that's where that actually comes from. So there was a temple to Zeus, a temple to Asclepius, and then a huge imperial cult presence in Pergamum. So to refer to this place as the throne of Satan and where Satan dwells, not a big stretch, right? Um, If you needed more evidence that Satan uh, had an affinity for Pergamum, their coins had snakes all over them. So (laughs) there you go. Uh, Satan uh, Satan actually gets called a snake in Revelation 12. But again, we'll get to that. So you can see a little bit better. There's some ruins there from uh, one of the temples. And then you can kind of make out there's a nice little picture of Zeus on one side of the coin and then a snake on the other side. And then that one's just a big old mean-looking snake. So, uh, okay. So how is Jesus described in this one? Yeah, he says, I'm the guy with the sword. (laughs) Now, we talked a little bit about this last week. What does that sword represent? Does anyone remember that discussion from last week? Yeah. Yeah, specifically, literally, the word of God. Uh, So this is the thing that when the prophets used to say, the word of the Lord has come to me, and then they speak something. This is in Hebrews chapter 4, when it describes the word of God as a sharp two-edged sword. Right? This is this idea, this idea that the the literal words of God... uh, change things and that should be a big surprise if we've read genesis 1 because what happens in genesis 1 god says stuff and then things change right so so i mean the the hebrews have understood from the very beginning that that god's word has this strong creative divisive formative power uh and that that's that's something that stays consistent the whole way through the tradition to the point that now where jesus is speaking and he says when i speak it's like a big old two-edged sword that's coming out of my mouth Good. Uh, so what's the church doing well? Yeah, they're staying faithful to God, to God, right? And apparently it's, it's actually even gotten pretty violent. Uh, at least one person has died. And it doesn't seem like this is something that happened very recently. It also doesn't seem like it's something that they're in danger of at the moment. So there have been lots of commentators that have speculated maybe this is an example of mob violence, which if you've ever read through Acts, you know that Paul was always starting mobs and they were always trying to kill someone. And uh, So it's, it's possible that the, because of what the church was doing at some point, it caused a flare-up, and during that 
during that scuffle, one of their people was killed. We actually just don't know uh, hardly anything about this guy, who he was, why he got killed. But that's that's kind of the best speculation that's out there right now, is um, because it doesn't seem as urgent as, for instance, what we just read in Smyrna. Right? That seemed like way more. Like you guys better get ready, and here you just don't have that same kind of language. So that's that's the the thinking behind that. Okay, so now here this one gets fun. What's the problem? There's a few names thrown out, right? So it says one, you're holding to the teachings of Balaam. Now, if you know the name Balaam, you probably know it for a super famous story in the Old Testament. Anyone know it? What happens in that? What, what do you know him for? Yes, he's the man who had the donkey t- speak to him. And the reason that the donkey spoke to him was because, uh, so back in the, in the ancient world, kings or tribal leaders could hire a prophet to go and speak oracles against a neighboring tribe that you wanted to do war with. And so this guy, a king, hired Balaam, and he said, hey, I'm going to give you a bunch of money. Go prophesy against the Israelites and tell them that when they do battle against me, they're going to lose, and that'll, you know, freak them out, and we'll win. Um, it's like, you know, psychological and fear tactics and all that. So Balaam is on his way riding his donkey, and an angel of the Lord appears in the road, and the donkey stops because it's no fool. Uh, But Balaam doesn't see the angel, and so he starts beating the donkey, and the donkey goes off the road, again, anywhere but towards the angel. And so he beats the donkey more, and so then the donkey turns around and he's like, hey man, why are you beating me? I'm just trying to save you from that angel. And then he turns around and then his eyes are open and he can see the angel, and he's like, what a good, faithful steed you've been, you know, and he prays upon the donkey. Uh, however, there's another story uh, where Balaam is actually accused later in the scriptures. Uh, I believe it's in uh, in Numbers. Let's see, yeah, Numbers 31, where uh, he's actually accused of leading the Israelites to worship Moabite gods and sleep with Moabite women. And so, again, we have this group of Nicolaitans here, and apparently they've brought their same false teachings into this church. Now, the question is, why would Jesus call the leader of this little group of Nicolaitans, Balaam. What is what what is it, what does he gain by doing that? Yeah, exactly. Very much so. He's saying, guys, just like just like Balaam did, this guy is trying to lead you astray. He's trying to lead you into worshiping false gods, which in this case would be the imperial cult. Right, And then he also says fornication. Now, we don't know if there was actual, it could have been temple prostitution or something like that. But in the Old Testament, consistently, the prophets used sexual sin as a metaphor for spiritual sin. So when you worship false gods, you're, you're cheating on God. You're, you know, you're, you're betraying your, if, you know, if we're the bride of Christ and they were the bride, you know, Israel's the bride of God, then you're, you're betraying your spouse. You're uh, doing spiritual fornication. So it, I'm not sure that it matters a whole lot in this particular case, but either way, God, Jesus is like, knock it off. Stop doing all of this stuff. You've let these people in. And, uh, so, so just stop. So what is the warning if they don't stop? How, what is he, I mean, what does he say? Yeah. He says, I'm going to I'm going to make war against you. Not like, I'm just going to come and give you a spanking. He's like, I'm going to make war against you with the sword that comes out of my mouth. Uh, yeah. So we're going to see the sword come back. All of this stuff comes back later in the text. Uh, where This stuff will get used over and over and over again. But what, what we see happening 
Oh, and, uh, sorry. Lastly, uh, what's what's the promise uh, to the to the Pergam the Pergamians, Pergamites? Yeah. So, <laughs> so they get two things that are weird. They get this hidden manna and they get a white stone. Okay. So manna is a reference to what the Israelites ate in the wilderness. It was how God sustained them uh, when all they had to rely on was him. Then they have this white stone. Now, in, in the ancient world, it was understood that if you knew the name, the true everyone had like a true name that was like their like soul name or something like that. And if you knew someone's true name, you could control them. So there were people, magicians, and they would sell you little magic amulets, and they would be little stones with a name of some demon or spirit or some kind carved on it, and then you were supposed to be able to use the name on the stone to control the spirit. Okay? So, there's several things that are interesting about this stone. First of all is its color. It's white, which means what? It doesn't mean purity. We talked about this last week. <laughs> Victory. Yeah, it means you win. Okay? Trust me, you'll get used to this. It, we'll, we'll do it so many times. Uh, we'll reprogram your brain, and then when you see a bride on her wedding, you'll be like, she won! Oh, no. Wait, purity. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, first of all, the stone symbolizes victory. Okay, which which again is a theme that you're starting to see come over and over and over again, right? Uh, and then it's also it's a name that no one else knows, which would mean what? Could be that. What what would be the benefit of having a name on a stone that no one else knew? Yeah, I mean this is essentially like you have access to a power that no one else has access to, right? I mean if 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 I'm a magician looking to make a buck and I find you know I find a name, I could put it on five stones and sell it to five people, right? I mean, that's in, I don't know. So Now, this is a great example of symbolism. Is Jesus actually going to give some people in the end of time a stone with the name of a magical spirit on it? The answer is no. <laughs> I'm getting some confused looks. No, not at all. <laughs> what is he saying? What's the point of this symbol? Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, again, put your put yourself in the in the uh, situation of these Pergamites, Pergamians, um, Pergamons. Uh, they would love to have access to a power that would give them victory, right? I mean, they they live in the throne. They live where Satan lives. They live where the, where Satan's throne is. They would love to have that. And what Jesus is saying is. You, you do have that. In me, in staying faithful to me and refusing to compromise, you have access to victory. You have, you have access to this power. And he used a common symbol that they would have understood in that culture to, to demonstrate that. Okay? Now, uh, so I want to kind of put all that together. Pergamum is one of the more complex ones. Uh, this is a major center of Roman religious authority. And the Christians have been persecuted to some degree, enough so that at least one person has died. And so, in order to alleviate the persecution, some teachers are advocating that they compromise in some way with Rome. We saw it in Ephesus. We're seeing it here, right? These, whatever these Nicolaitans are advocating. And so, Jesus is telling the church that if you, that if you compromise his name, that you'll never have real victory 
over these people. That the only, in fact, the only path to real victory is through remaining faithful to Him, no matter what. And even if that, even if that, even if that costs you, even if you have not, even if that costs you everything in your life, you have this this hidden manna. You have the secret. God will nourish and sustain you even through that. Okay. How are we doing? All right, pretty well. Oh yes. Yes. And if you go back to Numbers 21 and look at the uh, what was going on with the uh, the Israeli people as they went down before and went to the Red Sea, they were complaining about the manna. Yes. They said, you know, this horrible manna. So the Lord sent these poisonous snakes among them. Told Moses to make a replica of a bond snake, wrap it around a pole, and hold it, and the people who looked upon it would be cured. Yes. So you see another reference of manna. Yep. And you can start to hear that echo, right? Like that, that they would have known that story and they would have heard, oh, yeah, another example of where we weren't trusting God. And then, very good. Yeah, excellent. Great observation. You see the neutering in the church, modern day church right now, too, where to be socially acceptable, we compromise and ultimately do turn our backs on the Lord for the sake of trying to get along. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to talk. We're going to we're going to get real into application here in a minute. Uh, but but that's a that's a great uh, that's a great observation. Uh, okay, we're going to actually for time's sake, so we get to the application. We're going to skip Thyatira real quick. Thyatira was like the least important of all of the cities. It was pretty much had nothing really exceptional or noteworthy about it at all, uh, which is unfortunate. But uh, what you'll see in the letter of Thyatira, if you go back and read it on your own, is a similar thing to what we saw with Balaam, whereas there's a there's a, a woman teaching at this church, and she gets called Jezebel, who was like the evil queen. Uh, and so you actually have a really similar kind of thing. Um, so it's, it, yeah, they're, they're really, really similar, uh, Thyatira and Pergamum. So let's move on to Sardis. Yeah, I think we got time for these. Okay. Okay, so Sardis. This one's <laughs> this is the one when I read it. I'm like, Jesus, you're mean. Like, man. Okay, you'll see what I mean. So Sardis is situated on this hill. Uh, it's like this big hill country, and uh, so of course because it's on a big hill, it was a big fortress there. Uh, and because it's on the top of a hill, it's really easy to defend. I mean, that you have the high ground that you can see for miles all around you. You can see people approaching. Uh, Sardis was in a prime location. Despite that, the city had fallen twice to surprise attacks uh, over its history because the guards of the city had fallen asleep uh, during their watches. And so uh, once in the 5th century and once in the the 3rd century BC. Uh, Now also in 17 AD, so probably about 70 years, a couple generations before this, the city was devastated by this huge earthquake that ripped through the region and it was rebuilt by Rome. So this was one of Rome's strategies. If they didn't feel like bringing armies in and conquering, they would just like go to a place where a natural disaster had happened. They would say, hey, we'll pay to build your city back up, uh, but then it's our city. And a lot of times cities would not have any other choice but to say, okay, like we'll accept your help because of how devastating these natural disasters were. So that's what had happened to Sardis. Uh, and because of that, they were a very pro-Roman city, and they built they built several Roman temples within the city, either to various Roman gods or to the imperial cult. 
So let's, uh, let me get over to chapter 3. We will read the letter to, the Sar- to Sardis. Uh, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, real quick, fun little symbolism, seven spirits. What do you think that means? Got the number seven. Okay, which means the complete. So what is the complete spirit? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's fun. Fun little wordplay. Now, here's the thing, and I haven't actually seen any commentators say this, so I might just be making this up, but I I think it's a really good observation. I find it fascinating that there are seven lampstands, and again, a lampstand in the ancient world was a big old piece of wood or brass that you sat there and you lit a fire on top of. Okay? They didn't have electricity, obviously, so lamps were fire lamps. And then you have the Holy Spirit, which is consistently throughout the book of Revelation referred to as the seven spirits of God. Um, and spirit, the, the Holy Spirit in the ancient church is often represented by fire. And so I think it's, this is where it's a little bit of a leap, and I've not seen any of the commentaries go this far. But it seems to make sense to me that the, the, fi- the reason a lampstand is used for a church be, is because the fire in the top of the lampstand is sort of like the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, when you see... When you, see, when you see him threatening to take away the lampstand from Ephesus, for instance, it almost seems like the idea is they've let their fire die, like they've quit relying on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so, they're, they're, again, they're actually sort of stopped functioning as a church in any meaningful sense of the word. So, I, again, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, don't go quoting that to people. Or you just blame me and say, I don't know, this guy said it. So, uh, But I, I don't know. I, I think it's a correlation that holds up as you read through the book, and I thought it was, I thought it was pretty fascinating. So, anyway. <clears throat> I know your works, you have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour at which I will come. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot out your name from the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Okay, so Jesus is described as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And what is the church doing well? What did you see in there? (laughs) Not much, but there are a few in Sardis, who have not soiled their clothes, right? A few. And so Jesus holds them up and he says, look, whatever's going on in this church, there are a few of them who are not participating in it, and you all need to be more like them. And it's, it's I mean, can you imagine reading this, you know, I would be the, I would be the person standing up reading this letter to the Sardisians, the Sardines, and you would be looking around going, think i know who he's talking about right i mean you you, you should imagine this so what's the what is the problem he says you have a reputation for being alive but you're dead yeah yeah <laughs> right, we, yeah, no one, no one struggles with that. I, you know, and I wonder, I wonder who who their reputation is with. You know, is it with is it with the other churches? You know, are the other are the other six churches going like, man, those those sardines, they got it all together. We wish that we could be like their church. <coughs> or could it possibly be that they have a good reputation in their culture? 
that they've so assimilated with their culture that the culture around them can just say, well, we really like those guys down the street. Like they, they're a little bit kooky in what they believe, but like they got, you know, they, they're nice people or something like that. Yeah. And the reality <laughs> is we don't know. We don't know which way it is, but either way they certainly knew. And Jesus certainly knew. And he says, wake up. That's where I think it's like almost a little bit mean. Like again, because this city, like this, this proud city has these kind of like blights, these two little dark spots that like you just, you don't talk about that, right? You don't bring up when the guards fell asleep and we got conquered. Okay, that was a long time ago. Move on. And Jesus says, wake up or I'm going to come at you and you're not going to have a clue. That's like, like, I mean, this is a direct dig at their cultural identity. And that's why I sort of lean towards the idea that maybe their reputation is they're getting too friendly with the culture. You know, because that's, that's what Jesus takes a dig at. Again, I, we don't know, but that's my suspicion. Can it also be through complacency? Yeah, oh, Absolutely yep yep yeah they have a reputation for being alive but they're not alive they're dead they're just going through the motions they're putting on a front they're putting up an act and jesus says that's not that's not going to work because when i come you're not going to be ready for it at all now what's the promise yeah so close them clothe them in white robes which again is what victory see you guys are getting better so he says they need to stop doing what they're doing or they're going to be cut out of god's kingdom god's going to come back and good all right let's uh go through philadelphia real quick i want to get to laodicea because it's the best one um so i'll actually just summarize philadelphia this is the one that i said if you were living in smyrna and you read the one because remember this went to all of the churches so uh if you were living in smyrna and then you read the one to philadelphia you'd be like "Ah, i think it's time to move because essentially they're facing the same problems. They're both being persecuted. Uh, it's been hard for both of them. But then, uh, and, and it's a lot of the same stuff. So he says, I know your works. Look, I've set before you an open door. I know you have but a little power. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they are not. Uh, I will make them come and bow before your feet. Then he says this in verse 10. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. So if you're in Smyrna, you're like, hey, what's this 10 days in prison stuff? I'm moving to Philadelphia. <laughs> I think that's interesting. And then he, he goes on and makes some, some similar promises to them. So, uh, yeah, so that was the church in Philadelphia. Okay, so Laodicea. And I wish we had just all the time in the world to do all of this. But Okay, so uh, if you know any verses from the book of Revelation, you probably know verses from the church of Laodicea, even if you didn't know it. So, here it is. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. 
Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you, and I will eat with you, and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sit down with, sat down with my father on his throne. But anyone who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. A little bit of a different tone, Church of Laodicea. There's nothing that they're doing well. So here's a little background. Um, Laodicea is, an, is, is singularly unique because uh, it was built specifically for military reasons. In the ancient world, when you built a city, you usually tried to locate it near, oh, water, for instance, because you sort of needed that, and they didn't have a lot of uh, plumbing. Uh, Laodicea was built about seven miles from the nearest water supply. Uh, and again, it was built specifically for strategic regions. They were like, eh, this is a big wide open space and you could bring an army through here. Let's just stick a city there. That was Laodicea. Uh, it was about equidistant from the cities of Colossae, which is where the book of Colossians was written to, and a city called Hierapolis. Um, uh, Hierapolis had a hot spring and Colossae had a cold spring. And so they built an elaborate system of aqueducts that would transport water from both of the cities to, uh, to Laodicea so that they could have water. Uh, unfortunately, as you can imagine, transporting uh, water via aqueduct for seven miles, by the time it got to the city, it was neither hot nor cold anymore. It was lukewarm, and it was teeming with all kinds of nasty bacteria, and so it, it usually caused a lot of health problems in the city. Um, what other background? What's the other background? Oh, the other thing is that this is this is the other thing that's super fascinating about Laodicea. Uh, this an, an earthquake hit it about thirty years before this letter in sixty A.D. But the city was so rich that it refused Rome's offer to help rebuild. They were like, eh, "We've got this." That was fairly unusual, but they were an incredibly wealthy city. Uh, they were famous for an eye salve that was thought to be able to cure blindness. They were famous for a particular color of dark wool that was used to produce textiles. Uh, and so these were things that they had that made them particularly wealthy. And again, they're things that Jesus uses to uh, fantastic uh, effect in the text. So I want to go through a couple of, of commonly misunderstood things about Laodicea. Uh, so put this, again, anyone in here heard this before? You probably, I mean, we've all heard this text, right? Uh, the thing that I think is interesting about this text is that we, what, what I've always heard is hot water is good. It means you're on fire for Jesus. Cold water is bad. It means that you're like cold and dead faith. And so uh, I've heard this preached from pulpits. Jesus wants you either on or off, either in or out, not lukewarm. Lukewarm's the worst. Okay. The problem with that is that in the ancient world, Either hot or cold was great. Uh, the cold springs in Colossae were awesome, and they were too cold for bacteria to live in, and they were fine. They were great water. The hot springs in Heropolis were great, and, they, and it was fine. You could use them, and, and hot water was great. And we all we all love hot water, right? Okay. The only water that's actually bad for an ancient person was lukewarm water, because that's where disease can grow. And so, 
my suspicion is that what Jesus is saying here is not, I either want you totally all in or totally all out. What he's saying is, I want you totally all in. I actually don't want you totally all out or lukewarm. I want you all in. You, Laodiceans, you're very lukewarm right now. I want you, I want you to be good and useful and healthy. What you are right now is sort of like a cancer in the body of Christ. And if you don't get it together, I'm going to do what anybody does with a disease and reject it. I'm going to vomit it out of my mouth. And the language that Jesus is using here is fairly um, direct and blunt and messy. Uh, a lot of translations clean it up to, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is, no, it's it's vomit. So um, it's he's, he's uh, kind of through playing nice and he's not pulling any more punches. Okay. Um, now, particularly, what I think is interesting about what Jesus says to them is uh, because of their wealth, they've become so uh, complacent and they've become so self-sufficient. And the entire city, I mean, their, their culture was self-sufficient. Okay? When an earthquake destroyed them, they, they refused help. I mean, if you can imagine uh, you know, another flood coming through Dayton and doing damage like the one did back, what is that, 1913 or whatever, uh, and us telling the federal government, we're, we're good. We don't, need, we don't need your help. We're just going to do it on our own. Uh, just keep FEMA away. We don't, we don't need any help from them. We're just going to rebuild everything and undo all the damage and care for all of the people. Uh, be, I mean, it, first, try to imagine a city being that fabulously wealthy in the first place. And then second, try to imagine them being that uh, almost arrogant to, to refuse help from anyone. Uh, and, of course, Laodicea refused help because that would have made them subservient to Rome. And Jesus is implying that the same kind of thing is going on here. So he systematically dismantles them. Uh, in 17, he says this, You say that I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And then he starts picking them apart bit by bit. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. The money that you have is worthless. You need my gold. And you need white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. Oh, you have these textiles that you get so much wealth from? Big whoop. You need, you're, you're naked right now. You need my white robes. Again, victory. And then you need my eye salve. The stuff that you have is worthless. I can tell because you're blind. You need to buy the stuff from me. So again, if we have no idea what the culture of Laodicea is, we miss all of that. We're just like, why, why does he care about their eyes? I don't get it. But that was, that was, a, direct, uh, that was a direct attack on the La Laodicean culture. Um, the last thing that we really need to talk about is how that ends. Look. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will all share a meal together as friends. This is the New Living Translation. Uh, we've all probably seen this painting. We've all heard this verse preached before. I stand at the door and knock. In the ancient world, if you were traveling, first of all, uh, you probably didn't have any family in neighboring cities because they all lived with you. Second of all, you couldn't call and make reservations, and you couldn't get on Priceline or do any of that. Right? You just went. And the way you would find lodging is you would show up in a town, you would go into the town square, and then they had this whole elaborate cultural system of determining how honorable someone was. 
and someone in the town would come and invite you to stay with them that was uh, at more or less the same social level. And again, they had all I'm just just sort of like we do today. Like we can sort of see people and what they're wearing and what they're driving and how they talk, and we kind of size them up and sort of put them in a particular economic and cultural bracket. And they did the same sort of stuff back then, but it was considered unbelievably shameful to be left out in the town square. The implication behind Jesus standing at their door and knocking is that he showed up in town and not only did no one recognize him, but no one thought that he was honorable enough to give him a place to stay. And so, even though his own people have shamed him, he goes to them and he knocks and he says, it's not too late, open the door and I will come in. What fascinates me about this verse is that I have always heard it as a salvation verse. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart and you can invite him in to come in and live in your heart. But this letter is written to people who are Christians. It is written to a church. It's written to a church that is in a city that is so proud and so self-sufficient that they don't think that they need anything. And they've apparently left so little impact on their culture that they're certainly not facing any persecution like the other churches are. But beyond that, it's so bad that Jesus shows up in town and no one even knows who he is. And so he seeks them out and he says, listen, you guys are in a world of trouble. You are so detached and distant from me. And you're putting so much faith in the things of your culture that you think can save you, but they can't. You are wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. And I have come to you, and I am knocking, and it is not too late. You can let me in, and we can turn this thing around. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Questions about Laodicea? So was anybody really saved in that church? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we assumed that they were. It was a church. It was planted there, right? Yeah. Well, and, and but this is the this is the core uh, struggle of the of the the revelation, right? You have this culture that is decidedly godless, and then you have the gospel of Jesus. And everyone has to choose which one they're going to follow. And we've seen in all of these different churches that they've made different choices. And it's not even a clear yes or no. I mean, there's so many different ways that these choices have played out. But in this one, they are so enmeshed in their culture that no one even knows they're a church. We assume that it didn't start that way. And it's called a church. He's not like did the group of people that happens to hang out at that house sometimes in Laodicea, right? I mean, he calls them a church. So apparently at some point they, they were functioning as a church. But the way they have chosen to engage, and, it, and again, it fits, it fits the character of the culture that they were in. We don't need to be accountable to anyone. We don't need to be beholden to anyone. We've got this on our own. We can build up our 
uh, nest egg or whatever, right? We, we, we can do this ourselves, and we don't need anyone's help. And when you have that kind of an attitude as a culture, it's very easy to turn that into a spiritual attitude. You know, I'm good enough on my own. I don't need, I don't need God. I don't need the power of the Spirit. I don't need any of these things. Absolutely. Because, again, they all read all these letters, right? right? Good. And, and, and by proxy, it's given to us. So let's talk about application. Uh, what I'd like to do, um, maybe just for about five minutes, is if you can just kind of get around with some people at your tables around you, I would like for you to talk a little bit. And here's what I'd like you to think about. Um, first of all, which of the letters um, did you connect the most with? Where, where, did you, where did you kind of see yourself or maybe our church or something like that? And then um, I'd like you to, to just talk a little bit about how you think we today are tempted to compromise with our culture. Where you think this struggle is for the churches, if, there were, if this was to the churches of America or the churches of the Midwest, rather than to the churches of the Roman province of Asia. So take about, take about five minutes to discuss that, and then we'll come back together and spend just a little bit of time. Uh, but, but again, th- welcome to the entire rest of the Revelation study, right? We're about to... We're about to get in. So you're only about calf deep right now. It's not too late to get out. But after this, we're going to dive in. So uh, go ahead, take a few minutes with the people around you, and then we'll come back together and keep talking about it. Uh, have a thought uh, from your group that you thought was particularly insightful that someone said, or if you thought your own thought was particularly insightful. Uh, just something. <laughs> right, I know so many. Uh, any, any, anything that you guys all agreed about or something that you disagreed about, kind of like just hear what you guys talked about. So who wants to go first? Well, we kind of agreed that uh, the one that represents today for us the, the most was the last church because, okay. because we see as a society we're, we're kind of in that area where especially in a country like the United States and specifically in Beaver Creek area, we're, we're comfortable, as yeah. say, and, and as a result of that, sometimes Yeah. And uh, very little God in that equation it is what it should be. So. Okay, that's good. What we, that's what we came to. Okay. In our group, that's what she thought. I would put a form of you know, uh, Pergamon. Okay, why was that? Because, you know, you see these churches out there, they're trying to they, they compromise too much with Okay. To get their pews filled, or to get their coffee spilled, or something. So they they don't. You know, I don't think that they really stand for for Christ following. You know, okay. not following Christ is not their number one yeah. thing. Their number one thing is to get you know butts in the pew, mm-hmm. dollars in the bank. <laughs> to be comfortable, yeah. right? To, you know, that's yeah. Their, that's their whole you know goal. Is on, you know that's what I see on some churches. Okay. Yeah, good. Okay. Anyone else?
Absolutely. Do we do we have churches that are so concerned with doctrine that they don't love people? Sure, we do. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, we do. Um, do we have people in the world that are suffering in the name of Christ? Absolutely. You know, do we have churches that are compromising to be comfortable? Sure, we do. Yeah, and and that's that's part of the. That's one of the good things about this book, as as we continue to go through it. None of these, I was telling this group over here, none of these themes goes away. Uh, none of these, you won't get to the end of the book and be like, man, he just never went back and dealt with that stuff that he talked about in Smyrna. Like, it just never came back up. It'll all come back up. Uh, over and over and over and over again. Because this is a revelation of Jesus to these churches. And everything that's happening, again, uh, what's, what's happening in this book is the veil is being pulled back on reality. And so all of these churches in these seven different cities with these seven different problems and these seven different ways of engaging the tension between the gospel and the culture, all of them are getting to peek behind the veil of reality and see what's going on behind the scenes. And that is speaking to each of their situations in a particular way. Uh, what, What you probably noticed is that all of the descriptions of Jesus that he gave of himself at the beginning of the letters came from that first vision that John had. But they were all different, right? No, no church got the same description. And, and, and what that says is no matter – this is going to be a huge shock for all of you. No matter what your church is going through, no matter what problems your church is having, the answer is Jesus. Whoa. I just blew everyone's mind. But, but really, though, really, and it's always in different ways. It always looks different. And so what we're going to see as we continue to move through this book – is all of the different ways that knowing more fully who Jesus is, knowing more clearly what it means that the kingdom of God is coming on this earth as it is in heaven, what that means for us and how that challenges us and how that calls us to be more faithful disciples, people who make it to the end, even if it costs us death. You referenced earlier about the blessing of uh, reading the book, Christian book. I think it comes down to in the seven churches, none of them consciously were out there trying to pull away from God. Nope, you're right. And it was more the, the sloppiness of their theology or doctrines or whatever, or just the lethargy on their part mm-hmm. to not seek Him, the first love, but to just try to exist. Yeah. And that's where the vast majority of mainstream Christianity fits right now. Mm-hmm. It's just trying to exist into the culture and not be overrun and that's not what Jesus was calling us to do right and we'll see that we we will do our best to ask some really tough questions of our own culture because it's easy it's easy for us to look back 2,000 years and go man those people like of course you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols like duh and that's because we don't have idols today, and we don't have meat that gets sacrificed to them. And our kids eating tonight doesn't depend on whether or not we compromise the gospel. So it's easy for us to say that. But are there some hard questions we should be asking of ourselves? And there are, and we will ask them. Um, and we will let the, the revelation lead us into that. So, for next week, read chapters 4 and 5. Uh, John is going to get taken up into heaven. He's going to get a whirlwind tour of the sky, and so we'll get to go along with him in that. And so then, again, ask these questions. You know, what stands out to you? What's the clearest? What's the most confusing? Uh, again, just kind of take some notes on that. We'll start out with just a little bit of discussion about that next week. And then, for fun, bonus question, 
How many characters can you identify? This is where we really begin into the story of Revelation. It becomes a narrative like we talked about last week. And so who the characters are becomes important and what they're doing becomes important. And so we're going to start paying attention to the plot and to the characters and to the setting. And you're going to get really tired of me saying, now is this happening in the sky or is this happening on the ground? Uh, but that really matters. And, and it really changes how we understand this. So, so start playing with that a little bit. Uh, you have your symbol sheet. You have your background information stuff. Again, if you don't have those, they're over on that little table over there. But you can get those things, and you can begin to use them to start to interpret this. So I am so excited. We are, like I said, we're only like calf deep. It's not too late to bail out now, but it's almost too late. Pretty soon you're going to be hooked. So uh, let's close in prayer, and then we can get out of here. Uh, God, we're grateful for this opportunity we have to come and study your scripture, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church. Uh, It's so easy to leave all of this in the first century and to let it just be a neat study with some cool things, and we can marvel at how brilliant a writer John was and all of that, but but actually, at the end of the day, that's not good enough for us. We want uh, we want to we want to see a fresh revelation of Jesus, and we want to be challenged to look more like Him and to to embody His gospel, no matter what the cost. And so we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we try to bridge the gap between the first century uh, Roman culture and our modern American culture. We want to be sensitive to to how we are tempted today to compromise what you call us to, so that we can be safe and comfortable in our culture. And we ask that as we do all of this, that you would. Uh, not let us depart from our first love, that we would remember uh, that, that you are the person that called us in the first place and that we get to participate in what you're doing. Um, and so as we go from this place tonight, help us to keep those things in our minds and in our spirits uh, as we continue to read this revelation of your son. And we pray all of these things in his name. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. See you next week. Don't forget to read. And the podcast is working, so you can download it from my website. Uh, We'll probably put it on the church's Facebook page and stuff like that, too. Uh, You can send it to friends if you need to or something like that. See you guys next week.